So Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who are Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Please take your seats. Well, I don't know if you have felt this way, but certainly as a family, I think it's getting a little hard to invite people over these days. And I'm not talking about COVID, I'm talking about maybe even 18 months ago. Well, what do you mean, I hear you say? I mean, when was the last time you invited someone over? And shortly beforehand, you said, hey, look, we're really excited that you guys are coming over. But is there any food restrictions we should be aware of? And they say, well, oh, my doctor's got me on just a couple of restrictions. And you say, well, that's no problem. We'd be very happy to accommodate. What might those restrictions be? Well, they say nothing too much, just sugar-free, low-fat, non-dairy, peanut-free, gluten-free, no MSG, no trans-fat, low-carb, non-GMO, organic, vegan, low-calorie, and no fructose. Well, I think they'll be eating cardboard, won't they? Well, these food restrictions are a little bit like uh, what's happening in this passage we read today. These days, food restrictions are a big thing, and it's the same here in the, Old Test in the New Testament. Because God had given the people of our Old Testament, the people of Israel, he had given them some food restrictions. These food restrictions made any law-observant Jew. It made it impossible for them to sit down and have a meal with just anybody else. So if you think today's food restrictions are a little bit crazy, here's some of the food restrictions a first-century person of Israel had to deal with. First of all, you could not eat any animal unless it had both cloven, hoof, and chewed the cud. Well, there goes our Irish breakfast, doesn't it? You could only eat fish if they had both scales and fins. Only certain types of birds. No invertebrates, so prong cocktail is out. No amphibians, well, French food is out. You couldn't eat any animal that had a defect. You could not eat any animal that had been slaughtered unless it had been slaughtered in a very specific kosher way, because the blood had to be removed in a very specific way. Any food that had not been tithed upon, that was unclean. If meat touched milk, that was unclean. So no cheeseburgers, I'm afraid, and no pizza. These are known as the kosher laws, 
and many Orthodox Jews still follow them to this day. And you you may know then, Orthodox Jews cannot go out to eat with anybody who's not keeping the kosher law. You see, God had given the people of the Old Testament, his covenant people, certain kinds of laws that put up a barricade around them and the rest of the people in the world. We sometimes call these laws the separation laws because they separated Israel from everybody else. Now, one thing you probably notice over time is that religious people tend to emphasize things that make them distinct, the things that make us unique, barriers that often causes us as the salt of the kingdom of God to stay firmly in the cellar and not out flavoring the chips. It is not necessarily the moral laws that made Israel distinct or separate from the rest of the wider Roman world. The things that made them unique and distinct was the food laws, it was circumcision, it was the Sabbath, it was their temple along with the priestly sacrificial system, it was very particular holy days, it was their land. They looked at these distinctives as the things that would justify who was in from who was out. You would know someone was in the true Israel if they kept these distinctive works of the Torah or works of the law. But then bursting into this comfortable world arrives Jesus. The scribes who here, who are watching Jesus, who is acting as if somehow the temple and sacrificial system uh, for the forgiveness of sins, as if that righteous way of life is now somehow being redefined around him and his followers. And here Jesus is sitting down at Levi, the tax collector's house. Jesus is sitting with him and he's eating food that was prepared in an unclean house. And that means Jesus is acting like as if uh, this which was served, which had served to mark out who was in, is now being redefined around him. You see, reading through the Gospels and for that matter, the tapestry of the whole Bible, we see that Jesus entered the world where he was despised, he was hated, and he was murdered. Why? Well, because he was not religious enough. That was the reason. The teachers identified in verse 16 as the teachers of the law. It's another way of saying the scribes who are Pharisees. It's hard to see how things would have evolved into where they were at this dinner party in Levi's house. But what we do discover is that by this time, by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had developed a comprehensive system of laws. They had ended up with some 613 commands. And if that was not enough, they had decided to add on a few little extra laws, little uh, uh, amendments to ensure that the righteous, namely themselves, would be kept at a necessary distance away from sinners. The religious leaders had manipulated and corrupted a system of law that now, well, it separated them, elevated them above everyone else. Therefore, the teaching of Jesus caused them to hate and despise him. And the reason was he was not religious enough. He was not Jewish enough. And this message was dangerous. You see, the Pharisees, they had, they had shifted the eyes of their own hearts so inward that even as Jesus stood in full view, they couldn't recognize him. You see, bursting into this scene, Jesus headed straight, headed straight into conflict. 
You see, no way this Jesus who spent time eating and drinking with those elements of society that no prophet should have touched. Jesus spending time with prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers. He spoke to women, even worse, to Samaritan women, loose Samaritan women. His stance on fasting, his view of the Sabbath, ritual baiting. No way was he the Messiah. You see the Pharisees looking up to heaven, they boasted about how good they were, not seeing Jesus standing before them and pointing out how wrong they were. Well, we live in a world where what once was untrue is now true, and what is true has become taboo. And you see, just imagine for a moment that Jesus entered into our world. Imagine if the Son of God, our Savior, the Messiah, entered into the world, into Ireland, where we live, entered into this society to die. Well, one writer put it this way, he would be killed for the exact opposite reason than he was killed for in first century Israel. You see, they killed Jesus for his liberal religious standards. By the standards of the Jewish religious leaders, he was not holy enough if he was even holy at all. He was not righteous enough if he was righteous at all. He was not demanding enough. He was not legalistic enough. He was not condemning enough. He was not intolerant enough. He was not judgmental enough. He was not separist enough. Now, if Jesus came into our world, if he came into our country, well, he would be way too holy, far too righteous, too demanding, too legalistic, too condemning, too intolerant, too judgmental, and far too separatist. And perhaps our generation would kill him for that. The very opposite. Our culture, highly secular and extremely immoral. Their culture was highly religious and extremely moral. We would hate Jesus for condemning good people. They hated Jesus for forgiving bad people. Jesus was just not holy enough. In fact, he was so unholy that they concluded that what he did, he did by the power of Satan. His power was from hell. And a single phrase was used to condemn him. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that that's the worst thing that they could say about Jesus? He was a friend of sinners. But the life of Jesus was a scandal. And the scandal of his ministry was that he was a friend of sinners. Some commentators call it the scandal of grace. We know, don't we, that it's not that God gives salvation to the people who achieve it. It is not that God gives salvation to the people who are good enough or righteous enough or holy enough, but that he gives salvation to the ungodly, to the unholy, to the unrighteous, who believe in Christ and repent. Well, perhaps you would agree with me that one of the strongest cords that Satan uses to bind his followers to him is a works righteousness system that is, has tightly woven today as it was 2,000 years ago. 
Well, what do we do? Well, I suggest the scandal of being a friend to sinners is as vital today as ever ever before. And here's a couple of observations and applications from these verses, and then we're done. So very quickly, look back with me at verse 13. And it says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Here's my first observation. Live an unlikely life. Jesus was a man of action. He went out and he taught people as he passed by. Missionologist Alan Hirsch, in his book, The Forgotten Ways, notes that 80 to 95% of church attendants are passive. That is, that they're not actually active in the local church. I mean, they come to church to get fed, but not get involved. You might well say, my church is not like that, and that's perhaps perhaps true, and perhaps that's why you're sitting where you are today. But don't kid yourself, there are many Christians that live in isolation. We know a lot about isolation these days, don't we? Separation, cleanliness, self-preservation. We now must avoid people, not touching anybody, not eating with people, wearing masks. Isn't that how we live as Christians? Avoidance of the unclean at all possible. And behind our masks, we add to it. We adopt muzzles. In verse 17, Jesus uses the imagery of a physician, of a doctor. We only need a doctor when we're sick, don't we? Especially when we're sick, deathly sick. What chaos would have been 18 months ago if the hosp- in the hospitals, if the doctors and nurses decided they were not going to come to work? Why should they? Why should they put themselves in danger, in harm's way? Everybody else is working from home. I want to work from home as well. What if they said, I'm not an expert. I I don't understand this virus. I don't really want to learn new treatments. Anyway, really you need to go get experts to do that work. You see, it doesn't work like that, does it? You see, a doctor doctor must see his patients. He must uh, get to know them, their symptoms, their pain. Yes, it's necessary to have PPE. Well, check out Ephesians 6, and I promise you there will never be a shortage of PPE for the Christian. A doctor must leave the place of safety. He must go out into danger to to reach out, and he must touch and embrace the unclean. But are you like me? How often are my Christian conversations just for church life or for my righteous friends? Maybe it's conversations for the Bible study where perhaps I can show off my knowledge, my holiness, or perhaps my lack of it. But just imagine if we, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, set out as a vision of our ministry, as the ministry of this church, to unleash the passive 80%. Set out a vision to to flip that statistic. Wouldn't that be something? What if 80% of God's people were active in ministry. You think that can't happen? Well, take out our history books. The dramatic growth of the early church. The Reformation. 
Today, we can look at the church in China, in Iran, growth where services are outlawed, and not because of COVID. They have no Zoom. They have limited numbers of Bibles, limited numbers of books, but what they do have is unmuzzled believers, living unlikely lives, making unlikely friends. Which brings me to my second observation. Make an unlikely friend. Go make unlikely friends. Let me ask you this question. If you were going to start a grassroots movement that was meant to be proclaimed to the nations of the world, bringing a life, bringing love and joy, who would you choose to represent or spearhead that movement? Would it be a charismatic leader? Would it be a passionate visionary? Someone that would inspire the imagination? Perhaps a spectacular scholar with mind-blowing intellect? Or a strong leader, one who exudes courage and strength in the face of danger and opposition? Maybe you would want to get a larger team of people, not just one charismatic personality, but 12 of them. And you would start changing the world in science, in medicine, in construction projects, electronic communication, of course, climate action, sport, and business. You would get the best of all people together to make a successful movement, one bringing love and joy and peace and truth all around the world. While I'm sure there'll be many people jostling for those top 12 places on your list, I'm not sure if you would place a scoundrel or a traitor on the list. No, I don't think you would start with a traitor, a hated scoundrel that had sold out his country, who had sold out his friends for personal greed or gain. But then we're not Jesus, are we? You see, Levi here, who we know later on in the New Testament to be the disciple Matthew. Matthew here is sitting at his booth in order to get border taxes from people who are coming in from the north into Galilee. Levi and his workers would forcibly examine the goods of people coming into town. And he would decide to get as much money as he could in taxes. You see, tax collectors were hated by their fellow Jews. They represented the foreign domination of Rome. The role of the tax collector, well, it opened up an opportunity to make a fortune. The rabbinical writings classified them as robbers, sinners. But to the ordinary people, they were renegades who sold their services to the foreign oppressor to make money at the expense of their own countrymen. You know, Rome was an enemy, but worse still were the tax collectors. They were traitors to their own people and to their own God. But here we see that Jesus rarely does what is expected. He's full of surprises. And so the biggest surprise is what happens when he approaches Levi. I wonder, are you like me? When we look at Levi, we see that external shabbiness. We want to judge and criticize. I fall into that attitude. But that's not Jesus. Jesus does the unexpected. He just simply says, Follow me. Follow me, Jesus told him. And here's what Mark tells us. 
Levi rose and followed him. You can imagine how the crowd may have grasped the shock and wonder that this man from Nazareth would ask a tax collector, a sinner, to follow him. Fishermen, sure, okay, they have their quirks, they're a little bit strange and they smell funny, but that's fine. But a tax collector? Well, my guess here is if that the crowd were shocked, Levi was probably even more so. I'm certain Levi was stunned. Of all people, Levi would have been sitting outside the crowd thinking, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. How could I ever approach Jesus? I'm sure that Jesus thinks exactly the same about me as everybody else. But when Jesus calls him, follow me, Jesus said. Levi got up, left everything without a backward glance. You see, Levi knew he was infected by sin. He didn't have any delusions. He knew he was a sinner and no one had to convince him. And when Jesus offered life through him, well, that was Levi's way out, wasn't it? Levi might have thought that he wasn't good enough to follow Jesus, but that's not true. You see, Jesus didn't ask Levi to change himself before he came to Jesus. Levi, er, Jesus didn't make moral improvement a precondition of love and acceptance. Instead, Jesus just said, follow me. You know that Jesus is still like that. Here's the truth, that no one is so infected by sin that Jesus can't heal them. You, you don't have to improve first to be worthy of his love. No one is so far gone that they can't come to Jesus. No one is so unclean that Jesus cannot cleanse them. Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Sinners from every background. <laughs> Incredibly for us, Jesus has asked us to pay a small part in reaching out to share the gospel and to be unlikely friends to sinners. However, it is not for us to profile those who we are asked to reach. Go to all the world, go to all people, is what we're asked to do. The person you may least expect may be someone God has chosen to do an amazing work through. We play our small role. Let God look after the rest. Levi was the most unlikely friend for Jesus to make. And look what an impact Matthew has made in this world. He went on to live the most unlikely life, spending three years in the company of Jesus, seeing and doing the most unlikely of things, sometimes in the most unlikely of places. Here's my final observation, and then we're done. Go to unlikely places. Rising from the ashes of war are tales of incredible bravery and courage. Unlikely people that, when put into unlikely places, risked or laid their lives down for unlikely friends. Heroes giving the ultimate sacrifice for people they would never know or would ever meet. Often actions of bravery were unnoticed, unrecorded and lost to time. But nonetheless, 
were carried out because of a belief and a hope in a better future. I find it incredibly moving to read the names of fallen soldiers dotted around the villages and towns of Britain and Europe. Well, why? Because I'm a coward. I'm unlikely to do any of those things these brave men and women did. However, even for them, what they did was for a finite gain. Death would come and kingdoms will all crumble. How much more should we sacrifice ourselves for this infinite gain, for this eternal kingdom? Let me encourage you to look beyond the comfortable places, the safe places, the places where we won't be challenged much, where we won't risk abuse or ridicule or danger. This story here is not a story to condone or excuse sin. Jesus never condones or excuses sin. It's not a story that gives liberty to engage in things that belong to a, a pre-converted experience. Jesus did not go among the people in Levi's house for any other reason than to preach to them and to save them, to see their lives changed dramatically. Some had been saved and others may be saved. Now, I know there are fine lines, aren't there? The boat, they say, must be in the water, but the water not in the boat. The salt must leave the salt cellar or my chips will be bland. The point here is that we must go into the world. We must meet and chat and be in contact with people. We need to open up our lives to people to share with them what God has done. You know, maybe that's in the local drama club or the sports club. Maybe it's just picking up the kids from school. Or maybe it's by going to the most unlikely of places, away from the comfort of Ireland, away from the familiar. John chapter 4 and verse 4 records Jesus had to go to Samaria. Well, no Jew had to go to Samaria. You avoided it if you could at all. Why do you think Jesus had to go to Samaria? Because he needed to share salvation to those who were sick and who knew they were sick. You see, Levi's house was an unlikely place to go. Yet, it was the place to make unlikely friends. But then Jesus led an unlikely life, didn't he? Maybe we should too. Amen.